All right, last week we uh, began uh, what uh, was, was going to be a short series of three weeks in the Gospel of Matthew. We looked at the third chapter last week. We're going to go back to the third chapter again today. And um, actually, I think I'm going to go ahead and read the, the chapter again. It's only 17 verses. So let's look into the Word of God. Amen. John, or Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with fire, with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's stop there. We're going to read the rest of the passage in a few moments. But just to review last week, we looked at these first uh, 14 verses, or 12 verses, I'm sorry, essentially, and talked about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, how important the inauguration of his ministry is, or was, and compared it with <clears throat> the pomp and circumstance of the inaugurations of presidents here in the United States every four years on January the 20th, and talked about all that goes in, the hundreds and the thousands of people involved in those inaugurations, and the millions who attend and watch on television or online, and all the pomp and circumstance surrounding them and said how Jesus' inauguration had just one advanced man, John the Baptist, the humble man in the wilderness, crying, Repent, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The focus of the message was really on John himself and his characteristics and qualities which we as believers should mirror and should attain to. The three main points of the message were that John had a clearly distinctive lifestyle. He lived in the wilderness and dressed kind of strange and ate some strange things, but that's not what made it distinctive. It was distinctive because he was a faithful servant, obedient to the Lord. He lived differently than the world around him. And we as believers ought to do the same, live a distinctive lifestyle, not be the same as those in the world. And in so doing, build a platform for us to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. John had a clearly distinctive lifestyle. He had a clearly defined calling. All of us are called to have that, uh, to share Jesus with others. That's the primary calling of some of us. 
For others, it may be something different. We're to know Jesus and to make him known. For those of us who have other gifts, the process of doing that may involve being more uh, involved with a local church and serving within these walls. For others, it will be out in the community. All of us have gifts that God has given us, and we need to ask him to define those gifts and sharpen those gifts and use those gifts. We all have a clearly defined calling. And finally, John demonstrated a clear humility, a clear humility in his ministry. When Jesus came along, he knew that he, as he said himself, must decrease and Jesus must increase. He said that a man can only, be, uh, has only, can only do what's been given him from heaven. God gave him a specific ministry. He carried that ministry out. Last week, we looked briefly at Jesus' baptism, but today I want to go in more in depth into what took place in those few moments when Jesus emerged from that crowd that were gathered around the banks of the Jordan River. So let's read the last few verses of chapter 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Remember last week we defined inauguration as the beginning or introduction of a system, policy or period, or the formal admission of someone to office, or a ceremony to mark the beginning of something. Any or all three of those define inauguration. Before a new president, or one who has been reelected, can begin to implement his, or maybe in the future, hers, her agenda, they have to be sworn in and assume the office. This is, in a sense, what's happening here. Jesus is assuming the office of Messiah. He's assuming that office. That's not to say that Jesus wasn't the Messiah or the Christ before that. The night that Jesus was born, you remember what the angel said to the shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ, or Messiah, the Lord. He'd always been the Messiah, but now he was formally moving into that ministry on this day at the River Jordan. On this day, what has been is passing away, and a new system, a new system or policy, definition of inauguration, something new, a new system is being instituted. The religious leaders and those who are following their twisted teachings of men, whom Jesus rebukes in later in the Gospels when he speaks to them and said, you follow the traditions of men and not God. Those teachings those instructions were wrong, and those 
religious leaders were about to have a rude awakening. But before any of this happens, the inauguration has to take place. Jesus has to be set into that office. So as we read these verses at the end of chapter 3, it begs the question, why was Jesus baptized? Because last week we spoke about that a little bit. And remember we said Jesus didn't need to be baptized. This baptism of John was a baptism of repentance, and Jesus had nothing to repent for because he lived a perfect sinless life. So why was he baptized? Well, I have three reasons today. There probably are more. But I think these are three maybe primary reasons that Jesus went into the waters of baptism at the Jordan. The first one is this, to identify himself as the one who could save. He was baptized to identify himself as the one who could save. This we see in in part in Jesus' own words. When he comes into the waters, John resists and Jesus said, let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. Listen to the words of a theologian named uh, J.W. Shepard. He writes, Jesus was born under the law and in his infancy was circumcised and redeemed. If you read the nativity story, after Jesus' birth, his mother and his earthly father, Joseph, take him to the temple and go through that ritualistic uh, act of redemption. At the age of 12, he became a son of the law. He later paid the temple tax, though as the son of God, he should have been exempt. It was fitting that he should fill out all the ordinance of the Abrahamic covenant to completion. Throughout his life, he fulfilled the law that he might redeem them under the law. Galatians 4, 4, and 5. The law required priests to go through a ceremonial washing for consecration. Now, Jesus was being installed, in a sense, or inaugurated into the office of Messiah. He wasn't a priest in one sense because he wasn't following the priestly line. But later in Scripture, we see that he was indeed declared a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so, in a sense, he's fulfilling that requirement of the law in the Old Testament sense. He needed to fulfill all the demands of the law. He was born under the law to redeem those under the law. Jesus said in Matthew 5:17, just a couple chapters ahead of where we are now, in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. That was part of fulfilling all righteousness and showing that to others that he was the one who could save. Fulfilling all righteousness, leading a life every day of his life, under the law, keeping the law, perfectly. When we think about Jesus redeeming us, we think of Gethsemane. And how, as Gertie said a couple of weeks ago, the battle was won there. One of the greatest, the probably greatest spiritual battle that ever took place. The greatest spiritual warfare as Jesus goes before the Father and says, Father, take this cup from me if you can, but if it's not your will, your will be done. Sweating drops, drops of blood. 
critical to the plan of salvation. And of course, the next day on the cross, shedding his blood for the remission of our sins, critical to our salvation. But Jesus was winning salvation for the loss every day of his life by perfectly keeping the law. If he didn't perfectly keep the law, if he didn't live a perfect sinless life, Gethsemane and the cross would not have had the impact that it did. We sing much about the cross, and rightfully so. But I was thinking as I prepared this message, we ought to be singing more songs of worship of how Jesus lived the perfect life for us and honoring him for that. We do, I suppose, but not as much as we should. So the first reason Jesus was baptized was to identify himself as the one who could save. The second reason I see is he, baptized, he was baptized to identify himself with those he came to save. I mentioned this last week. Let's look at it a little more in detail. He came to redeem those under the law. He came to the waters of baptism not to identify himself with the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the teachers of the law or those who had become corrupt religious leaders who looked at him askew and were threatened by his presence and his life and his teachings and his ministry. He didn't come to identify himself with the Herodians who thought that it was a good thing to be submissive to Rome. He didn't come to identify himself so much with the Zealots who thought the opposite and wanted to rebel against Rome. He came to identify himself with those who were coming to those waters of baptism coming to confess their sins in the act of baptism and admit their great need for God, for his mercy. Jesus first identified himself with humanity by becoming one of us as a baby. But he didn't stop there. He subjected himself to every temptation known to man. Hebrews 4.15 says this. We'll begin in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He identified himself with humanity by becoming a man. But not just that. He subjected himself to every temptation that we face. You think you faced a temptation that Jesus hasn't? You haven't. Every temptation known to man. He can identify with us. He can identify with us. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be offended. He knows what it's like to be beaten. He knows what it's like to be lied about. He can identify with us on so many levels. 
And so Jesus entered those waters of baptism to identify with those he came to save. We'll talk a little more about temptation next week as we move on to the next chapter, the temptation in Jesus' life. The third reason I see for Jesus being baptized was to identify himself to those he came to save. John the Baptist says in the Apostle John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 31, that it was for this reason that he came. Let's turn to that for a moment. John said, For this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. A crucial part of John's forerunner ministry was what took place in that water when Jesus came, that he might be revealed to Israel as the one who came to save. This is the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah. Crowds gathered, hundreds, maybe thousands, I don't know how many were there around the Jordan River that day, Witness what took place, what we read a few moments ago in Matthew chapter 3. But not everybody understood. Everyone who saw what happened didn't understand what was happening. This is an important point because not all who see understand. We see this truth throughout the Gospels. After Jesus began his ministry, he did great things. He preached and proclaimed the kingdom of God. He talked about the kingdom of God and the Father's plan. He healed. He delivered. He performed miracles. And many saw those things happen. And many believed, but not all of them. I believe that those who were gathered around the Jordan River that day that Jesus was baptized, who witnessed what happened when he went into those waters, some of them did understand, but some of them didn't. The Apostle Paul, when he speaks about his own conversion, in Acts chapter 22, I believe it is, he's before an angry mob in Jerusalem, and he's telling the story of his conversion, how he was on the way to Damascus with papers that were going to allow him to persecute, imprison, maybe even kill Christians because he was a zealous Jew. And along the way, God interrupted him. Jesus appears to him in a bright light, and speaks to Paul. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? I'm Jesus. And when Paul is telling the story before that mob in Jerusalem, he says, those who were with me saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice. They heard something, but they didn't understand it. I think it was the same at Jesus' baptism. And we see it exemplified in the Gospels. Crowds followed him. 
Some believed, some did not. But Jesus' baptism is a definite sign to those whose hearts were prepared, who came into those waters of baptism themselves and received John's baptism, and their hearts were prepared and they repented. Those people knew that this was the sign. This was the Christ, the Messiah that they'd been waiting for. So he identified himself as the one who could save. He identified himself with those he came to save and to those he came to save. So let's look at the baptism itself in the final few minutes here. What took place at Jesus' baptism? Because those moments that Jesus was in the water of the Jordan River set the course for a big paradigm shift in Israel and in the world, ultimately. Jesus comes into the water. John resists baptizing him. Jesus says, let, let it be so now that all righteousness is fulfilled. John consents. And what happens next will amaze you. Do you ever see those mems or those, uh, what do they call them, clickbaits online, on social media? Some story about some guy or some girl, this is happening to him, and then it says, this guy did this, and what happens next will amaze you. And then you click on it, and, eh, yeah, that was kind of interesting. Maybe a little bit amazing. Well, if there was a video taken of Jesus' baptism, it could honestly say that. This man went into the waters of baptism. What happens next will amaze you. Because it was amazing. It was awesome. It would be absolutely true. Because in the next few moments, all three persons of the triune God make an appearance there in the waters of baptism at the Jordan River. Jesus comes up from the waters, and the heavens open, it says. I'm going to speak more about that as I close. Interesting little tidbit there. But the heavens open, and the Spirit of God descends in the form of the dove. And the Father speaks. The Spirit of God comes in the, in the form of the dove and rests and stays, remains, John the Baptist says, on Jesus. This is the confirmation that this is the Messiah. Confirmation by the Spirit. Then the Father speaks from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the affirmation of the Father. And the confirmation of the Spirit plus the affirmation of the Father equals the revelation that this is the Messiah that Israel has waited for. The Spirit descends in the form of a dove. When we look at the symbolism there, you think back to the time in Genesis after God destroys the earth by means of a flood, saving only Noah and his family. And when the 40 days and 40 nights of rain are over, and the waters begin to recede. Noah sends out first a raven to see if the waters have receded completely, and he comes back. 
and so he knows it hasn't happened. And then three times sends out a dove. The first time the dove returns. The second time the dove returns with the olive branch in its mouth. And the third time, not at all. And Noah knows that the waters have receded and what is a in a sense, a recreation of what God had done, a fresh new start, something new that God was about to bring to pass was beginning. Something new was beginning in the waters of baptism at the Jordan. When the Spirit of God descended on Jesus, something new was about to begin. And there was an anointing that came down on him. Jesus was always the Christ. He was always the Messiah. But he came in the form of a man. And as a man, God sent down the Spirit of, of, of God, the Holy Spirit of God, descended on him and remained on him. In the Old Testament times, we read the accounts of the Spirit coming upon people for the exploits that God had called them to do. But he would not remain with them. But when Jesus came and he was baptized in the River Jordan, the Spirit of God descended, anointed him, filled him, stayed on him for what was about to take place in the next three years. Everything that he did was in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descends, fills him, anoints him. John says that the Spirit of God was given to Jesus, only Jesus, without measure. For all of us, we have the same privilege that those Old Testament saints did not have of having the Spirit of God come and fill us and remain with us, but the Spirit is not given without measure to us, only to Jesus. The Spirit comes, anoints him, fills him, and the Father speaks from heaven. The words that the Father speaks are a fusion of two scriptures from the Old Testament. Psalm 2, verse 7, where it says this, Actually, I'm going to read a few verses from Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Jesus, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Isaiah 42.1 I won't turn to it, but just read this portion. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights, in whom I am well pleased. What the Father spoke from heaven at the Jordan that day when Jesus was baptized was a fusion of these two scriptures. This is my beloved Son. This is the one I'm setting in this office of Messiah, in whom I am well pleased. This then is the first fulfillment of a messianic prophecy in Jesus' life as an adult. We know that as a, when, before he was born, we saw prophecy after prophecy fulfilled at the time of his birth. 
about, Bethlehem, about him being born in Bethlehem. For unto us a child is born. But here, as his ministry begins, after he comes out of obscurity, Jesus, anointed by the Holy Spirit, has the Father speak over him. And it's a fulfillment, the first fulfillment in his ministry of Old Testament messianic prophecy. Those who would have ears to hear would remember those words from Psalms, from Isaiah. The Spirit of God came upon Jesus. The Father spoke, and the ministry was begun. Now let me just share this, and I'm going to do do a little song that I think is appropriate as we bring it to a close. But in the Gospel of Mark, the same parallel passage that speaks of the baptism of Jesus, we find very similar wording. Mark chapter 1 Verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. The Greek word there that's translated as torn is the word schizo. We've heard it referring to schizophrenic, two minds, torn open. The Greek word is only used two times by Matthew or by Mark in his gospel. Only two appearances. This is the first one. The second one is in Matthew chapter 15 verse 38. Jesus has given up the ghost, so to speak in King James terms. And the curtain of the temple was torn, schizo, in two, from top to bottom. Only God could do that. And so, the heavens are torn open at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the Father and the Spirit act at that time, the Father speaking and the Spirit anointing, and the ministry has begun. For Jesus, and then at the end of his life on earth, as he's dying on the cross, and he gives up the Spirit, the heavens open again, because the temple curtain is torn from the, big, from the top to the bottom, and the way to the Holy of Holies is now through Jesus. Jesus was baptized to identify himself with us. He was baptized to identify himself as the one who could save and to identify himself as to the ones he could save. The confirmation of the Spirit the affirmation of the Father equal the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah. His baptism was an inauguration 
the beginning of his ministry. What had been was not going to be any longer. The world was never going to be the same. Nothing would ever be the same in Israel. Those Jewish leaders who had been corrupting the word of God were about to be confronted. Those world leaders, the local leaders like Herod in Judea, Pilate, the Roman governor, and ultimately even the empire, was about to be confronted by who Jesus was and what he would do and what his followers after him would do. The times were changing. There's a song written by the songwriter, poet Bob Dylan about 50-some-odd years ago, which is a protest song, that I've rewritten a little. My apologies to Bob, but I made it apply to this passage and to this event in biblical history. If John the Baptist were around, if he were a singer-songwriter, maybe he would have sung this song this way. Come gather round Israel wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your soul to you is worth saving Then you better be baptized or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a-changing Come Sadducees, Pharisees throughout the land And don't criticize what you can't understand These people will soon be beyond your command Your old road is rapidly aging Please get out of the new one If you can't take a stand For the times they are a-changing Come kings and come emperor Please heed the call don't sit in your palaces mighty and tall For the axe is soon coming, the tree will soon fall The battle outside is raging It'll soon shake your windows and rattle your walls For the times they are a-changing It is drawn, the tide is cast. Slow one now will later be fast as the present now will later be past. The order is rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last. For the times they are 
for a change Times were changing. A new order was about to be implemented and instituted, but not before Jesus was tested in the wilderness. Come back next week and hear about that. Let's close in prayer now, and if any of you have needs, the elders and others will be here to pray for you. Please come forward. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your presence here today. We thank you for the glorious time of worship in which we focused on you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for your precious word. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you are and all that you have done. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us as the one who could save. And for many of us here today, you have saved us. And Lord, I pray that if there are any here today who do not know you as the Savior, Lord, Messiah, that their hearts will have been pricked by that same Holy Spirit that descended upon Jesus, and that they will be drawn to him, understanding their need, confessing their sins, repenting and receiving forgiveness in a new life. We ask your blessing now, Father, on each and every one as we go forth into this world this coming week. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.